Today will be our final lesson on the inspiration, the preservation of the Bible. This will be uh, part five. Uh, we have uh, covered several areas. We have talked about revelation, uh, what revelation is. Uh, obviously, revelation is speaks of a disclosed a disclosing of information that could not have been known otherwise. We have talked about two different types of revelation, the first being general revelation, which comes through nature, through conscience, and even through history. And we've talked about special revelation when God reveals himself directly in a personal way, such as God did in the Garden of Eden various times throughout history, uh, through his son Jesus, through the, the word of God, that special revelation. And then we've talked about the word inspiration. What does it mean? There cannot, you cannot have a, you can have revelation without it necessarily, necessarily resulting in inspiration, but you cannot have an inspiration without first having received a revelation. And the word inspirate, inspire, uh, literally means God breathe. All scripture is breathed by God, inspired. And then we looked at the various views of inspiration. There are several. There's the natural view, uh, which totally denies any supernatural element in the process. They just see the Bible as a great work of art on the level of Shakespeare or any other great artist. The second view is that is that a partial inspiration, which believes that while not all the scriptures are inspired, some of it is. And the third view is called conceptual inspiration. It's not necessarily the words themselves there that are inspired, but the concept behind those words. And the fourth view uh, is what some would call the encounter inspiration. In other words, the Bible becomes inspired to each individual reader as they encounter what they perceive to be truth. And then finally, there is plenary verbal inspiration, which of course is where we hitch our wagon. Plenary meaning, meaning all, verbal meaning words, or God breathe. It's all breathed by God. And then we talk about proofs of inspiration, the Bible itself, the indestructibility of the Bible, the transmission, uh, just the, uh, the, the carefulness through which uh, the original autographs were copied into the manuscripts uh, that we have today. And then we also talked about fulfilled prophecy. How many prophecies, prophecies in the word of God have actually uh, been fulfilled? The numbers are staggering. I mean, it's estimated there are at least 456 prophecies in the Bible that refer to the Messiah alone. Uh, and of these, 109 of them were fulfilled at his first advent. So we're waiting for the others to take place between now and his second advent. We also looked at scientific accuracy of the Bible. No, the Bible is not a science book, but when the Bible speaks on matters of science, it is correct. And then we talked about history. Uh, throughout history, uh, especially in the realm of archaeology, um, we have seen the Bible proven over and over and over and over again. And every time they think they've found, ha ha, we have found a contradiction. It's not found to be so. And then the final proof, which I believe is the most powerful, is transformed lives. And there's not enough paper. There's not enough recording 
for me to talk about how many people, their lives have been absolutely, totally transformed by the word of God. And then leaving that, we go into the issue of inerrancy. The Bible is without error. It is entirely free from falsehood, fraud, and deceit. It is inerrant. That's what we mean. Now, some, you know, you got to define terms when you're talking to people today. Uh, some would hold to absolute inerrancy. That means that the Bible is absolutely true in all areas that it addresses in areas of science and history. Others would hold full inerrancy. Um, and of course, you and I, of course, uh, hitch up to uh, absolute inerrancy. Others would say full inerrancy. Um, what, what that basically saying is, you know, when it comes primarily to scientific historical data, it's not quite always spot on. And then others would refer to as limited inerrancy. It's only inerrant when it comes to the issues of salvation, which I find that funny. You know, we kind of pick and choose which parts of the Bible we want to believe. Um, and then some hold to its inerrant and its purpose. Uh, in other words, it accomplishes what it was meant to accomplish. That's the only way that it speaks of inerrancy, which is like, you know, that's whatever. That's, that's crazy. But it's important because all of Christianity rests on the inerrancy of the word of God. And, you know, it is infallible. It is the standard of measure for all matters of life and practice. And if, if we have to pick in our own frail state, which parts are the word of God and which parts are not, it's a mess. We believe in absolute inerrancy. It is inerrant from the beginning to the ending. If you find a contradiction in it, then you need to sit down and ask yourself, what am I not seeing here? And again, we talked about copyist errors. Sure. I mean, you know, you, you, you have to say that the word of God is inerrant in the original autographs as God inspired and moved the pen of the men that he used to write it. And over a period of time, there were copies made. And we talked about some of the transmission, um, things that they would go through, like so many words per page, so many columns on a page to make sure everything was right. But inevitably, you know, the, the inspiration does not necessarily, um, apply to the transmission. But if you look at all the documents that we have today, there is a 99% match between all of them. 99% Sure, there are some words that might have been misspelled. There might have been some numbers that were, you know, flipped. But those things aren't important. The word of God is inerrant throughout. And then when, today we're going to talk about canonization. A canon is a measuring rod, a rule, a standard. In reference to the Bible, the canon refers to those books that have been measured and found worthy to be part of the Bible. It is essentially viewed in two stages. It has been determined by God and it has been recognized by man. Determined by God, recognized by man. In other, in other words, canonization is what God, it is, it was God who decided what would be in the canon. Uh, Harold Wilmington, who just passed away, who was a longtime professor at Liberty University, said, The Bible is not an authorized collection of books. 
but rather a collection of authorized books. In other words, God authorized those books. Now, a few things to consider are that the Old Testament, as we know it today, was compiled by the Jewish people. The church had nothing to do with it. The Jews, um, under the providential oversight of God, is the one that collected those books. It was firmly established well before Christ. Of course, no doubt, God was involved in that process. However, our, our Lord further confirmed it by quoting from or alluding to every book in the Old Testament canon, except possibly Esther. So, our Lord quoted from them. The Jews are the ones that collected them. They are not at dispute. Okay. Some have looked at Luke eleven fifty one as a verification of this when our Lord said, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Now, to understand that statement more clearly, you need to understand the Hebrew Bible starts with Genesis, the blood of Abel, and ends with Second Chronicles, the blood of Zechariah. In Genesis 4-8, we see the blood of Abel. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And then the final book in the Hebrew Bible, Second Chronicles 24-21, we see the blood of Zechariah when it says, So they conspired against him, Zechariah, and at the command of the king, they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. This served to affirm that Jesus believed everything from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, everything in between. Now, in regards to our New Testament, it was essentially decided by several factors. These included authorship, local church acceptance, church father's recognition, subject matter, and personal edification. Now, for the purpose of our time together, I don't have time to go into all of these, uh, but most of them are pretty self-descriptive. Authorship. Was it one of the apostles? Was it someone who was closely associated with the apostles? Was it accepted by the church at the time and throughout the centuries? Did the church fathers quote from and rely upon it? And other those who were discipled by the apostles, did they um, acknowledge these books? And then the subject matter. You know, a lot of the reasons we reject like apocryphal books is because they're historically inaccurate. They make um, they make uh, they talk about things that aren't found anywhere else in the scriptures. I was reading. Uh, somewhere the other day, I think it was one of the notes in my Bible, and it gave a great, like it listed all the apocryphal books and why they are rejected. The early church rejected them. They were not written by the apostles or people associated with the apostles. The early church fathers did not recognize them. The subject matter is off course. It has nothing to do with it. They contradict each other. And then also personal edification. How has this book been a benefit or edified the church in times past. Now, some will warn that we just 
can't rely or we can't make the argument just based on those things, but understand and accept the fact that the Holy Spirit has been responsible for making sure that these books are placed exactly where God would have them to be placed. In other words, don't make it sound like man did it all. Man in his own devices couldn't do anything, but the Holy Spirit played a large role in the accumulation of the inspired manuscripts, and he is fully responsible for them, okay, and not the schemes of man. So in regards to the finalization of the canon, so we're talking about, you know, from the time our Lord Christ walked upon this earth, understand that for, for at least 300 years, there really wasn't a quote, <clears throat> New Testament. There were writings that were floating around from church to church, but there was no accumulated New Testament. It was not until the year 300 BC that the New Testament was officially canonized and recognized at the Third Council of Carthage in 397 AD. And that's what we hold in our hands today. So that's what we refer to when we say canonization. Old Testament was already there when our Lord came upon the scene, never been in dispute. New Testament was officially canonized in 397 AD at the Council of Carthage. So the purpose of our lesson has been to look at the canon of Scripture, not only in regards to its inspiration, but how God has preserved it. And as for inspiration, we've discussed how God has chosen to reveal himself through both his creation, through general revelation, and through his word, special revelation. We've also looked at the different views of exactly what inspiration means and how others have defined it. And as for the issue of preservation, we've seen how God throughout the centuries has preserved his word in such a way that we can now know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we indeed hold the very words of God in our hands. Henry Haley, Haley's Bible Handbook, said, Apart from any theory of inspiration or any theory of how the Bible books came to their present form or how much the text may have suffered in transmission at the hands of editors and copyists, it bears on its face the stamp of its author that it is, in a unique and distinctive sense, the very word of God. Well, I pray you guys have been blessed by this study. I know I've given you a lot to think about, and that's what I encourage you to do. Study more. If there's something that you heard that didn't quite click, study it on your own. Be a good Berean. See if these things be so. Remember, God loves you, wants the best for you, working all things out for your good.